Hi everyone, Stu here. Just wanted to say ahead of the start of the show today with Chris Armitage, which is a really great exploration of his, his career and how behavioural science is being used across the industry at the moment, um, that there were a couple of mistakes in today's show, so I thought I'd own up to them early on. The first one is that uh, Chris isn't, in fact, the first health psychologist I've had on the show. What I meant to say was he's the first health psychologist and academic we've had on the show. Um, so slap wrist for me there. And, and secondly, I talk about Jeremy Hunt, in this podcast uh, about being the health secretary. Obviously, the health secretary is Matt Hancock. Just got stuck in a time warp for a moment. So over to the main show. Uh, hope you enjoy it. And if you have any feedback, please do leave it on iTunes or, or whatever other podcast medium you, you, you get these from. Um, but also, if you've got any suggestions about people you'd love to see interviewed, then please do send them over to me at... Um, you can add me on LinkedIn or um, email me at stuartking at busybodies.co.uk. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast, where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. My name's Stu King, and I've got a background in public health, working in the NHS, local authorities and Public Health England as an obesity and physical activity lead and as a behaviour change intervention designer in my company, Busybodies. I'm excited to be a creator in this podcast on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, who exists to bring together professionals with an interest in behavioural and social science and public health to improve the knowledge and practices used by professionals across a range of industries to have a lasting and positive impact on individuals, families and communities. You can join the BSPHM for £25 if you're working and just £10 if you're not working, including if you're a student, to get all the benefits of being part of an active and vibrant network. So far, we've had some fascinating guests from academia, industry and government exploring what they do and how it improves people's lives in the real world. And our guest today does not disappoint. Professor Chris Armitage is a health psychologist, a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences an Associate Fellow of the British Psychological Society, a Professor of Health Psychology and Director of Research at the University of Manchester Centre for Health Psychology in the School of Health Sciences. His research uses psychological theory to develop effective behaviour change interventions and he's published over 150 peer-reviewed articles in academic journals. That's quite a resume, Chris. Uh, welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, Chris, from the introduction, I think it's fair to say that you've got a lot of experience in health psychology, generally. Um, but could you just start by explaining what a health psychologist is? Because you're my first interview with a, with a, a, a true health psychologist. Okay, so health psychologists are applied psychologists. Um, it's a protected title. So I'm registered with the Health and Care Professions Council. Mm -hmm. Um, and health psychologists are interested in physical health predominantly, and that might be people's perceptions of symptoms, people's interactions with the health service, it might be providing advice on health policy, or it might be changing people's behaviour, like physical activity, smoking, alcohol consumption, and dietary intake. Great, and where do health psychologists generally work? All, all over the place, I would guess that the majority are probably working in higher education institutes mm -hmm. but there are people working in private practice and people working in the health service as well delivering services 
Great. Okay. Um, and if you could just go back now to uh, tell us a little bit about where your journey started and, and how you got to where you are now. Okay. Well, I guess like a lot of people's journeys, I started out not knowing what I really wanted to do. And I drifted into doing psychology at university because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it kind of sounded interesting. Um, I was fortunate that I did it in the days when it was all on the final year because I was terrible <laughs> at psychology <laughs> and the penny only really dropped in the final year right. and that's when I started doing my final year project okay. and I had a very good uh, supervisor, Professor Paul Norman, who's now at the University of Sheffield and I became really interested in doing psychological research and it just so happens that Paul was co-editing a book with uh, Mark Connor on predicting health behaviour and that's I think sort of one of the landmark books in this field of psychology is ap applied to behaviour change. So um, my final year project was very much influenced by the work that Paul was doing and I went on to do my PhD with Mark Connor mm -hmm. at the University of Leeds and, and so again that's how I, you know, I started off with a, <laughs> a vague interest in psychology. I got very very enthused about um, doing research in psychology and, you know, I had two sort of mentors there mm, who were mm. sort of at the, who are and, and were at the cutting edge of a psychology theory as applied to behaviour change. And what, what you said that you weren't, um, you weren't very good at it in the first couple of years, what, what, what do you mean? Because um, <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people feel like that well, when they're going through their undergraduate degree. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I applied for all sorts of different kinds of jobs. Um, Psychology is very broad, so I think people have a very set idea of what psychology is, mm. and they tend to think of it about uh, what goes on in people's brains, and it's partly that, but it's so much more than that. So the the, the breadth of it is that you know there are some, some parts of it about individual neurons firing, and some bits of it are about um, social structures and how they might influence people's behaviour. And at mm. all points in between, you know, the, there are, you know, the qualitative elements to it, there are quantitative elements to it, people conduct ethnography, it, it's a very, very broad thing. So, so trying to understand, you know, basic biological processes, as well as these great societal structures, it's quite, mm. quite a challenge. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I've not thought of it like that. I, I, I think you're right, I think people do think of psychology as being really probably what neurophysiology or something like that is which is all about in, intra-brain stuff. Yeah, well, it's, it's that, and I think it's, uh, psych it's that crossed with psychiatry in yeah. some sort of... <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's why I was vaguely interested in it. Yeah. You know, I, didn't, I guess I kind of didn't really know what it was to start yeah. with. So, uh, yeah, but that's, that's the perception. And certainly, you know, so a lot of our students, when they come in, definitely, definitely want to do clinical psychology mm. because... That's their. That's the representation of psychology that they have, mm. and of course, we get the opportunity to tell them. Well, it's so much more. So much more than that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, do, do people tell you their problems a lot? Uh, <laughs> yes. I've got some stuff that I will talk to you about after <laughs> after the podcast. See, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Okay. Um, so the role that you're in now, if you could tell us a little bit about what that entails and um, how it involves behavioural science and why, why behavioural science is important to that, the role that you've got at the moment. Okay, so, um, so I'm a professor of health psychology, um, which um, means that I do teaching and research for the University of Manchester. Mm 
Um, and my research area is in behavioural science and behaviour change. So um, it's about generating new knowledge. It's about training and educating sort of the next generation of health psychologists. Wicked. And, and, and you said that behavioural science and behaviour change... This is something, because I'm not an academic, I'm, I'm very much on the ground trying to interpret what you guys are saying mm-hmm. at a very basic level in, in the delivery of services. Um, what I came across in, in doing some of the work in, in preparing for this podcast, not this one, for developing the podcast generally, this notion that there's a difference between behavioural science and behaviour change and there are sort of camps of, uh, and different thought processes that people have about those. Do you, can you explain the difference for us? Um, well, I think behavioural science is quite a, is a broad term and I, I think it's uh, the scientific study of what drives people's behaviour. So it would include psychologists, but I think it would also include sociologists, economists, geographers, you know, quite a, a broad church. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, behaviour change is one of the topics that a behavioural scientist would look at. It's not the okay. only topic. So, you know, things like symptom perceptions, things like uh, coping with stress, you know, th- those kinds of things. Not strictly to do with behaviour change, but it's still within that sort of sphere of behavioural science. Is there is there um, an argument to be made that, that studying those things and understanding them is important with a view to at some point changing or supporting people to change their behaviours in those in those areas, even if they're not directly linked. Yes, um, I, I think it. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. It is very important. It's. Um, I mean, there's a, the you know there's sort of within your question there's sort of the idea of sort of basic research, which is the research for its own sake to mm. just understand better mm-hmm. and, and generate new knowledge. And the sort of second part of it is around how you actually apply that into into practice, and you'll find people on a continuum yeah. from, you know, n- not terribly interested in it, finding mm. an applied way of doing it, to to being incredibly applied and building things from the ground up. So, w- what I try and do is, I think, sort of try and do both at the same time. So if we're developing behaviour change interventions, I I see two broad ways of doing it. One is you start with uh, a theory, and in testing that theory, you try and bring about behaviour change. The other sort of side of it would be you take uh, a a problem and you explore that problem within individuals and then sort of build an intervention from the ground up. And I think both approaches are equally valid. and I think most people are somewhere on that continuum, certainly in the field of behaviour change. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the, fir- the first thing you mentioned there about um, researching things f- almost for their own sake is sort of not as futile as it's... It, there's, there's a futility in the way that that sounds sometimes, I think, when people say that. But if you take um, space exploration, for example, that, that wasn't done in with the intent of building, you know, satellite navigation for example but but it, it has that impact so it's sort of more exploratory but there probably will be a payback some point in the future but you just mm-hmm. don't know where it is yet yeah so for example i'll, I'll give you a shall i give you a concrete example? yeah that'd be great so one of the things that we're that sort of we're interested in, in developing interventions mm-hmm. are what behavior change techniques to use so um there's a taxonomy of behaviour change techniques so in principle there's a choice of 93 
different behaviour change techniques that you could put into any given intervention. And, of course, you could put all 93 into one intervention, but it would be quite unwieldy. Mm. And so you then start to ask questions like, well, which behaviour change techniques work for whom, in what circumstances, and how do you deliver them? So I'll give, so I'll give you one example of one yeah. behaviour change technique. Okay. So one of these 93 behaviour change techniques yeah. is self-reward. And self-reward, I think, is interesting because it appears in lots of treatment manuals. It's in smoking cessation guidelines. It's in weight management. It's, you know, it's been around for years. It's in, you find it in behaviour therapy, all, all sorts. You know, it's, it's just a thing that people do. Mm-hmm. do you know, mm-hmm. so you, t- you get people to, you know, once they've made a ch- some sort of change, you tell them to reward themselves. And so you think, well, you know, this is obviously something that we might want to put into an intervention. But then you realise that nobody actually knows whether it works or not. Mm. So what we did was we looked at the literature and looked for all the examples of studies where people had tried to find a causal effect of self-reward on behaviour change. So in other words, you randomise people to self-reward or not to self-reward and then see if their behaviour changes over time. And what was interesting was that we didn't find any studies that had actually done that. Right. So it's a thing that people like. It's a concept that people understand. It is an identified behaviour change technique, but actually there's no evidence that it works. So that's that's a whole programme of research there. Do self-rewards work? In, for whom do they work best? In what circumstances? How do you best deliver self-rewards? Yeah. For what target groups do they work? For which behaviours? So that small question of self-reward mushrooms into a much larger question <laughs> mm. and you apply that to all the 93 behaviour change techniques and that's that's your space exploration <laughs> and, and <laughs> right also there. and also to other groups i mean because it might work in some groups and not others and uh, the, do you do it publicly do you yeah. do it privately yeah. is it written down is it on an app is yeah. it you know uh do you do it as 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 part of a team or do you do it on your own um, does it does it matter how big the reward is? Does yeah. it have to come immediately after change, or is a delay okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- th- there are whole learning models that say, well, the reward should come at random intervals, and yeah. you know that that that's that could be decades worth of work just yeah, on that one, one tiny thing. problem. Wow. And it's not immediately obvious, I guess. You know, because you know the other side of the argument is that well, we just use self rewards. I think they work. Yes, you know, yeah. <laughs> people wouldn't use them if they didn't work. Well, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. No, um, no. So I'm not saying that we should you know take self reward out of everything. I'm just saying that there are quite deep questions about behaviour change techniques that I, yes, I think yeah. are worth are worth answering and worth addressing. Because wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great to have that sort of guidance to say self reward works best in young people who are trying to quit smoking, um, who uh, trying who are trying to quit smoking, who've tried vaping once, or you, you know, yes. no, I understand, yeah, and, and yeah. You, the that, conditions where it yeah, works, and and you could also say, well, it doesn't work at all well in people trying to lose weight. No, I, I really, I really think that's interesting. We're, we're doing a piece of work at the moment where we're trying to use the ninety-three BCTs um, to map all of the different programs that we deliver, which is twelve different programs for weight management and behaviour change. And um, what we, what we found is there's a lot of stuff that we thought worked, and now have a hypothesis to determine whether that's true or not. So we're testing that. 
some stuff that we realised actually has just been done because we've always done it that way, and other stuff that really worked but we didn't know why, and so we've gone backwards and sort of retrospectively coded it, and that's been really interesting as well uh, because we've been delivering for a long time, and it was based, a lot of the delivery was based on early sort of you know psychological theory self-determination theory those types of things but then when you really look at the individual level behaviors it's been actually both infuriating really long-winded but fascinating at the same time yeah and i think that's one of the things that comes out of really engaging with that complexity yeah i think that's what a lot of people have been doing um and and we've done that with uh, interventions as well but what we're trying to do is use it is build from the ground up mm. and I, th- I think one of the difficulties with behavior change is that in, in a way the cat's sort of already out of the bag yeah <laughs> and so to use your space exploration analogy you sort of really had to build a rocket from the ground up so yeah. you had to develop engines and then you had to figure out the problem of you know breathing in space and and, yeah. and those kinds of things whereas with behavior change people have already flown to the moon and now we're trying to unpick how they did it yeah no <laughs> yeah is, that's true um and and i think that's what makes behavior change challenging because i think people don't put the same amount of thought into it that we do no. um you know and, and people do just do the things that they've always done so the example of self-reward it's a thing that appears in lots and lots of manuals but it's one of those things that people like the idea of but actually, we don't know whether it whether it works or not. Mm. Um, Do you think it's the difference between that that common sense, what people consider to be common sense, versus what you can then, you know, empirically show? So, so like the difference in, in behavioural economics, say, where you can show certain things actually happening versus what people would anticipate would happen. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, and I, I think common sense isn't a, as good a guide in behaviour change as people might think. So I'll give you the example of student satisfaction or patient satisfaction for that matter. If you think about, you know, the, one of the targets for universities and for the NHS is to make sure that patients the, and, and the students are satisfied with the care that they receive or the education that they get. But that sort of then means that you should avoid doing things that people don't really like. Yeah. And actually learning isn't supposed to be terribly easy so for example lots of our students don't like doing statistics um it's an absolutely essential part of the course but they really try and avoid it like the plague <laughs> yeah and of course they don't like that bit so you know how, how would you how would you boost their satisfaction well you take it out don't let them do it and it's the same with weight management you know mm. most people would like to just carry on eating what they're eating thank you very much you know yeah. <laughs> actually you know the changes that you've got to make sometimes are actually quite tough so the sort of common sense sort of approach has some value but i would always look at the evidence first that that that's uh, um true also of so it's true in weight management it's also true of commissioning weight management services mm-hmm. so actually a blog i wrote this week <laughs> good timing mm-hmm. um but the 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 metrics that you choose the kpis that you choose have a massive impact on what you do if you for example if you want me to help someone lose five percent of their body weight in 12 weeks i can do that but i do that using a certain set of tools that i know i can get someone to lose five percent of their body weight in in 12 weeks if you want me to say they're going to be five ten percent body weight reduction in a year two years three years 
I would focus on very different things. I would focus on the, a more social determinants model because I've got time to really invest in looking at what, what it is around that person that needs to sort, sort of be modified, what social support they've got going on, what their relationships, conflict, all those different things mm. that we know will be important for creating a, a, a structure around them that allows long-term sustainable change. And so if you're a commissioner and you, you ask for 12-week, 5% body weight loss, which is the standards that's what all the metrics say in 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 you know the the um, evaluation frameworks then you should expect that people will focus on those things first and as a bonus they might focus on how to make those long term and sustainable but in reality they're focusing on those things first because that's the thing that gets measured and that's where the money lies as well well I, and i think i what's interesting about what you say there is that i think sometimes people focus on patients or or the clients as people whose behavior needs to change mm. but actually what you've described is a behavior change intervention targeted at practitioners yes so you set you've set people a goal <laughs> the commissioners set people a goal and they will act on that goal and so the commissioners are also humans yeah. <laughs> and also yeah probably need to have their behavior changed and and it goes goes all the way up and i I think there's a a growing appreciation that just looking at the client or the patient's behavior isn't sufficient and actually there's behavior all the way up to the top yeah and there's behaviors that that need to change so you know people's people's automatic reaction is to assume that people's behavior is driven by something going on in their brain whereas that's not actually the case. Um, people are driven by lots and lots of different things, of which one thing might be the way that they think and reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and yet the sort of only game in town, or the prevailing game in town, is to educate people. And, you yeah. know, you, you need education, but there are so many other drivers of behaviour that you could be targeting at the same time. And I would also argue that well, you know, how much education do, do you need? Um, so uh, smokers, for example, get, you know, lots and lots of information about how bad it is for them, how bad it is for them. I have not yet a single smoker who no. didn't think that it was bad for them. And so you hammer people, and, and it's the same with all sorts of behaviours, yeah. but uh, you just give people the same message and they become slightly resentful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think the role of behavioural science is to ask, well, well what else? You know what else? You know, for, for for smoking, in fact, for most behaviours, all you need to know is that this is bad for you, and you should stop doing it. Yes. Or you should do something else, and that that gives you the space then to do to target some of these other levers like people's habits, uh, people's opportunities, people's motivation. Yeah. You know all these other things that are beyond just educating people. And at a basic level, that can be the, the capability, capability, opportunity, motivation. We've talked to people on the ground in weight loss interventions at that level because that actually is very understandable for people. Mm-hmm. They go, do, you know, can you do it? Do you have an opportunity? And, and have you, what, what's motivating you to do it? It's, it's a really simple way yeah. of actually getting people to engage with some of the complexity without it feeling like you're going, yeah. you know, that mushroom effect that you mentioned of yeah. looking at one thing. It, it's the same in people's lives. If you start saying, you're going to have to change everything. <laughs> you know, that, that's yeah. not going to work for those people. Um, Can I just pick you up on the word simple? <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 Sorry, okay. this is a really bad habit of mine. Yeah. And I, I hear lots of colleagues in behaviour change and behavioural science more broadly say, oh, this is, a, this, is, this is something that's simple. And 
I, I understand why people say that, but I prefer the word elegant. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, on this rocket to go back to spacing, you know, there'll be one button that fires the engines, which is simple, but it's not because the amount of research that went mm. into that one button yeah. to fire that rocket at the right time to the right intensity. It's, it's elegant because there's a lot of machinery behind that. So I prefer to think of it as, a, as an engineering thing. And if thing, it's, great, it's great. I think if the Combi model looks elegant, I think that's great. But that really masks a world of complexity. Mm -hmm. of, you know, there's, there's hundreds of theories and, and models and, and constructs that lead you up to the Combi. Yes, no, <laughs> and, it, and it's it's great if people can relate to it. I think, but I, yeah, the, the complexity is is there, but it's it's like a, a well engineered piece of kit. <laughs> yes, no, I, I totally take that point, and and I I always think whilst having worked with uh, you know thousands of people in the, in the past directly on on changing behaviour in weight management, whilst they find it simple, un understandable is probably a better way of putting it mm. because it's it's something that's clear enough that they can sort of go okay so just got to work on these these things that's that does work what what i haven't seen a lot of is well translated interventions that have got all of the complexity that you talk about underneath it so all of the bcts for example i, I don't see many interventions that have got those created to the to the point where they're elegant enough to be delivered effectively well i i i think i, I agree with that and i what i would say is that the we're quite early on in our mm. journey with this. So um, when, when Behaviour Change Wheelbook came out in 2014? I think, well, the, I first saw it in 2011, I, th I, oh, I, I think. It, well, some, uh, of concept, some of the concepts. Some of the concepts, yes, yeah. So <clears throat> relatively new stuff mm. in comparison with space travel and the physics underpinning it mm. that's mm. been around for thousands of years you know yeah. ideas about gravity and you know all these things that go to build up space travel yeah. have been around since people looked to the stars i would imagine however what is interesting actually in in um <laughs> coming back to this space travel thing, no no no, i don't mind it i, I quite like the, the fact it keeps coming up but the the um that really actually took hold in the, in the beginning of the 60s when with the cold war uh, as an arms race mm -hmm. and between the US and Russia. And um, it became more and more important. You know, it was basically put up the importance ladder in, in those countries. Um, and, and I wonder what you think about the, the current state of, for example, health, public health, smoking, the cuts that we've just sort of endured for the last few years, £700 million that's come out of public health the last few years. You know, is there... People are talking about it more and more and more. Um, obviously, Brexit's had a big impact on what we've been able to do. But now, if you notice, Jeremy Hunt and, and Boris Johnson are talking about health and social care now again. Are, are we at a place where there is going to be more pressure to really invest in and investigate um, the behavioural sciences um, because they are probably our best hope at, at changing both macro and micro behaviours? Well, I can only hope so. My concern is that um, we might regress, or that the people driving this agenda um, might be the ones who prefer to do things quickly and kind of do mm. things by <laughs> common sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, because a lot of these things seem like quick wins. Um, so, 
I'm, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic because people are talking about it more. But I, I also don't think that they perhaps appreciate the complexity of it. Um, because these kinds of behaviour change interventions can have negative effects. They can have side effects. And unless you do the research properly, yeah. you, you can do harm to people. And I think there's this sort of assumption that it's sort of a... It's sort of a quick win. It's yeah. it's an easy thing to do because we all know how to change people's behaviour. And I, I really don't think that everybody does. And also a panacea. That it can just fix yeah. all ills. Well, you know, I mean, you, you look at all the marketing campaigns for you know, climate change, you know, and some of them look good, some of them look bad. The Cancer Research UK campaign that's mm-hmm. out this week that's mm-hmm. being criticised, um, you know, so it's got these cigarette packets with obesity on the outside. And... It's being it's being criticised quite a lot in the media, uh, and I think if you just think about what the underpinning message is, so kind of the underpinning message of getting smokers to quit is that somehow they're sort of too stupid to understand that smoking's bad for them. That's not the case. I, I don't think I've met any stupid smokers who are unaware of the risks. So the message of that Cancer Research UK campaign seems to be obese people are even more stupid than smokers which I, I can't imagine resonating terribly well with the target audience. So mm. it's well-intentioned. Uh, I, I imagine it worked well in focus groups, but I, I, I think it could have negative consequences. Do you, do you think they're using the same... I mean, because smoking has dropped significantly since the 70s, 80s, do you, do you think they're using the same um, principle as they did with, with smoking of it's going to be a long period of time and there's lots of shock tactics or, or for example the clunk click campaign for seatbelt use and things like that well I, I think the clunk click and smoking were different because they were backed up with legislation mm-hmm. so there were a lot of things going on all at the same time yeah. and people sort of like to refer to the clunk click campaign because it was quite salient but you know th- there were laws th- that were enforced you know, there was a lot of behaviour change mm. activity going on, so it's it's not just the salient bits that are yeah. are there. And similarly, with things like the smoking ban, the advertising ban, you know, th- th- there are other things at play. <laughs> I, yeah. think, I, th- I think I think with smoking, um, that I, I'm not, I, I think obesity is going to be a different kind of problem to tackle. So you know, you have the th- things like the sugar tax that that might have an effect down the line um you know there are various messages about you know well should we have a fat tax and all, all these other kinds of things that might come into play at, at some point okay so to to move things on a bit could, could you um talk about how you think uh, how effectively you think behavior behavioral science and behavior change science is being used in your industry so in the academic side, but also if you could speak a little bit about the the um, behaviour change consortium that you're part of as well. Okay, I guess my industry is in educational. You know, is 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 the main business of of the university. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is the lack of use of behavioural science that universities seem to to use. Um, now, this might get a bit controversial, so, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I think some of the messages that come out from management yeah. are <laughs> on the demoralising side. So I don't mm-hmm. think... It's, it, we have this quite interesting thing of... We, education's about changing students' behaviour, but we never talk about it in, in terms of that. All we do is we 
uh, increase their skills, so their capability. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's about it. You know, we yeah. don't know whether they actually translate that into into action further down the line. So in our industry, we don't really use behavioural science to achieve the, the sort of main work of the university, really. That's interesting. So the main aim is to upskill people, educate them, excite them. Um... Well, yeah, so, so what we do is we give them knowledge, we give them skills, sometimes we give them skills, and that's, that's about it. Mm. And we don't... We, we don't approach it as a behaviour change problem. We don't conceptualise it as trying to change the behaviour of students. What, what do you think you could or should do then? Uh, well, I, th- I think we probably just need to look at the whole business of universities, <laughs> which is probably a bit... <laughs> so not a big a task. <laughs> but um, just reconceptualise how we think about the universities and what we think about education. Because um, okay. a lot of our students learn a lot about the, the facts of psychology. They have a lot of knowledge about psychology, but they do, I think, struggle to apply it and use it. And I think that's probably what employers want, is people to be mm. flexible to use their knowledge. But the, the way that the degrees are compartmentalised into units, you, you can see that students learn one bit, compartmentalise it, then move on to the next bit. Yeah. And there's, there's not the integration and the, the flexibility and the, the using it in quite the way that they should. And do you think, um, having, I, I went through I, what I think you described earlier um, when I was doing my Masters, I think it was, and, and do you think there's a moment, though, when uh, the penny drops that all of a sudden um, students, they start to become much more self-directed about really putting together all of those things um, because they're excited by something and before that it's all just difficult subjects that they're trying to learn and then all of a sudden they're excited by something and then yeah I'm not I'm not sure for how many students a penny drops right Um, it certainly did for me I can almost remember the thud in the back of my brain yeah and that's what we should be aiming for is to Mm. get students to that tipping point but I'm not sure whether we necessarily achieve that I didn't sleep for two days, because um, I and I can tell you why. Um, because I was designing, I was already, I'd got funding. I did my masters part time. I'd got funding to deliver um, a, a weight management intervention for families, and I was already designing it using everything I was learning from all these compartmentalized things in psychology and in, uh, you know, I had a lot of physiology. And my background was in physiology, so a lot of my a lot of the stuff I was bringing in was quite physiological in nature. Mm-hmm. Very boring for people on the ground, I'm sure it would have been. So I'm glad we didn't go down that road. But the, the this moment when we learned about habitus, um, which is a sociological theory, which I really did not like sociology, not enough answers in it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now all of a sudden my, my, my dissertation became a sociology-based one and I didn't sleep. I rewrote everything for a couple of days. I called up my lecturer, I swore at him and, and stuff. And, and he was great. You know, it must be the moment as a lecturer you're looking for, which is you've helped someone have that, that epiphany that moment um and, and it's i feel sorry i feel sh- sorry for students who don't get to have that moment actually yeah i mean it's interesting you say that was during your masters so if you think about the average age of students by the time they gradu- graduate they're sort of 20 you know on average we about 21 yeah. and certainly all the neuroscience stuff would show that the brain doesn't mature until past 21 or around mm. 21 ish so if that's the penny dropping moment um, I, I can imagine that we just missed that point, yeah. and so you got that during your your masters, and certainly we get it with our sort of PhD students. But yeah, some of our undergraduates, I, I 
it tends to be the ones that have uh, a year out in industry yeah. or abroad or yeah. they come in you know having taken a gap year they're the ones that tend to do a bit better which would fit in with that neuroscience kind of view of uh, brain maturation um, so I, I don't know I think that maybe that is a maybe that is a physiological thing well I, I think it's um as much physiological as it is experiential it, because I think the reason it hit me so hard is because I could see why it mattered and yeah. and and all of a sudden what was theory that I was trying to learn became this can literally change things in real people's lives on the ground and and hence my 15 year journey from that point to here where yeah. I'm now trying to interview people to see how do you get people to have those moments and how do you bring the really high level um, innovative stuff that you're working on as an academic into people like me or people in industry or people in public health that can then translate it meaningfully and be really excited by it because it's such an exciting feeling to be part of um you know we're a minor part of the behavioral science industry but we we, we hope that we're bringing it to people in a meaningful way so that it meaningfully impacts their lives well i think traditionally academia has not been very good at uh, engaging in practice and ensuring that their research has impact. And I think that's changing um, slowly. Um, I, I just think there's been a slight reluctance, perhaps. And I think academics are naturally cautious. So if you write a journal article, you write the best possible journal article you can, and you spend your penultimate paragraph apologising for how bad the research you've just reported was. And uh, that's entirely appropriate. You know, you need to not overstate the claims. But it doesn't make for a very translational kind of discipline. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to get a little bit braver at offering advice. Because the thing about behaviour change is that if academics don't, put forth their opinions and say what they know based on the evidence then there are a dozen other people that will who are perhaps not quite so well qualified who are perhaps not so cautious in mm. their advice which is i guess when you end up perhaps with cancer research uk campaigns that go you know that go viral but also um, also the media will won't publish that that sort of modesty at the end they're, they're publishing that's right the, the snippets that they want to say red wine drink a glass of red wine every day because it cause, you know it will stop you from getting cancer yeah yeah whatever yeah. well i mean that's that's the better story isn't it yes. so i think we we just have to get better at, at doing that um i, I think it's, it is difficult though because i think we are naturally cautious um but i think we're getting better and one way in which we've been getting better is working more closely with government so uh, one of the things you were asking me about was our behavioral science consortium mm. so we're teamed up with Sheffield Hallam University and we're a, prefer a preferred government supplier um, of behavioural insights work. So there are us and five other providers on, on this list and we're invited to bid for tenders that are put out by um, any government department. So at the minute we're working um, with Doncaster Metropolitan Borough Council on evaluating their uh, local delivery pilots for physical activity um, and that came through that portal and what's been interesting about that work is that we've worked more closely with public health practitioners within Doncaster Council and have developed the work together 
so it's it's different to the way in which academia normally works. Um, so it's a lot quicker. Yeah. It's um, a lot more focused on solving the immediate problems, and it's more collaborative, and therefore I think more useful and potentially more impactful. So that's yeah. one of the new ways in which we're trying to work more closely with what actually happens on the ground. And of course, we've got all this knowledge about what works in the um, in the academic world. And what's great is working with colleagues, you can find a way to translate that stuff onto the ground. And, and can I ask, is it is it going the other way as well? So obviously you've got knowledge in the academic world and it's, it's translating down into the, the delivery or design of, of services or, or, or certainly engagement with problems and, and you know advising them. Are you finding that actually um, some of the research might seem now a little bit contrived, if that's not too controversial a word, because because when you really look at what people are dealing with and what they're trying to do on the ground and the speed with which you're trying to do it because of the timelines that are involved funding-wise, politically or whatever, are, are you finding that that's then informing the way you do research as well? Oh, yes, it's definitely a, a, two, a two-way street because, you know, we, we have to do research that's that's impactful. Um, um, but it, it depends on the research question, you know. So some things that what you describe as contrived um, is is quite useful if you're tra- testing out different kinds of scenarios. So if you think yeah. about, you know, the self rewards and how big should it be and who should do it and you know do it publicly or privately, I, I can imagine a series of laboratory studies, you know, with students. At a, keyboard that might help you iron out some of those key questions before you then take it actually into the field but it it would work backwards as well you know you try these things out in the field and talk to people and you know maybe that would help you design the experiments and and shave you some time off there so yeah Yeah. I think it's a it's a two-way street and so do you think that academics who are so you're going across the two sort of yeah. elements there the academic and then the are you, are you calling it industry or is it public health or are you, do you not I, 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 public health practitioners I, I guess okay. so so because you're engaging in both camps there um, do you think that academics who um, currently aren't doing that they're, they're sort of more focused in the in the academic side and the research side the more pure research do you think that they're missing out on something by not involving themselves in in the um, the other side the public health practitioner side? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. It seems that you're more well-rounded for for it, if you like. Um... Well, I, I first worked for Manchester. Uh, it was my, my first full-time job, and I remember turning up on my first day, and uh, a colleague there said, "Oh, you know, w- welcome to the department. Um, you know, where, where did you do your PhD?" And I said, uh, "Oh, I did my PhD at Leeds." And he looked down his nose at me and said, oh, Leeds, it's rather applied, isn't it? So there's this slight snobbery about uh, doing the pure sort of basic kind of research. And so there has been a tradition of sort of being a bit sniffy about doing applied research. I personally think that both is is equally valid. I, I can also understand why some people don't do the more applied stuff. Because I, I think it, it takes a certain kind of person to do that. Mm. What type of per, what type of traits do you think? It well, I think you, you need to be open-minded, uh, sort of person-focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you need to be 
well, <laughs> slightly socially skilled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think those are traits that not everybody has. And yeah, I don't think it's controversial to say that the academics sometimes have a reputation for being into statistics and and sort of into the numbers um, yeah. more so than into the sort of and, and that in, that informs the kind of research that I do anyway. So I. I see myself as sort of a conduit between the two kind of worlds, and mm. that's fine, but it's mm. not for everybody. So, yeah, so there's, there's the joke about you can tell what kind of academic they are by when they're talking to you, are they looking at their own shoes or are they looking at your shoes? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, I wouldn't want to lose the basic side of what I do, um, but I appreciate the people that do do the work on the ground because, you know, the, the, these two ends will meet in the middle at some point. And I hope to be in that middle ground. Really. Yeah. Um, okay. So, can you um, give give a couple of uh, examples of the the way that your work directly translates in the real world? So, who it's affecting, how it affects their behaviour, um, what's working well for you, and what doesn't work so well. Okay. So, I think I've decided that there are d- different kinds of levels of uh, influence that we're trying to have. Um, the most direct is with the participants in our studies, mm-hmm. but that's not really, I think, the kind of impact that you're talking about. So I, I guess where I'm aiming for are people who are policymakers and practitioners. So for practitioners, I'm trying to change their behaviour to make it more evidence-based. And for policymakers, I'm alerting them to, to the fact that there's a science underpinning this kind of thing and that they need to be careful when developing messages or interventions to try out on the public. Mm. So I think, you know, those are the sort of three main audiences that were, or the three types of people whose behaviour we're trying to change and influence. Yeah. And what's going well in that respect? Have you got an example of something that's worked really well for you in, in doing one of those or, or, or a couple of those? Well, I, th- I think things like the... Behavioural Science Public Health Network, which is which is where where we met, wasn't yes, it? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, so those kinds of meetings, I can see that I'm having an influence on people working on the ground. Um, yeah. You know, we have uh, meetings with uh, people who work in practice who are starting to talk the same kind of language and uh, at least try to sort of you know, not do academic work, but to kind of think about changing behaviour in a slightly different way. So rather than just doing what we've always done because that's what people like to do, to just think a little bit more about the consequences of the things that we're doing. So I think think it is changing practice. Yeah, and for for those who don't know, the um, the, the BSPHN, the Behavioural Science Public Health Network, is... um, one of the one of the things I get most out of it is is going along to the to the meetings to the conferences, um, and having access to this sort of network of people. So, you you were a keynote at one of the events that I went to, and I didn't have any qualms coming up and talking to you because it was it's, it's a very sort of informal place, and and you've got people from public health teams in there as much as you've got academics and people from industry and I think that's the real value of it is that they're all there talking about something that's really important and really hard to get that good quality information about if you if you don't engage in something like that. I also think that that kind of forum is a very friendly kind of forum and I think health psychology in general is is a friendly sort of (laughs) 
discipline mm. because we share a common goal and everyone in that room simply wanted to make people better yeah. <laughs> in a very no, naive kind of way maybe maybe yeah. a sort of simplistic kind of way mm -hmm. but I think we all share that common goal and so health psychology doesn't have some of the snobbishness that other disciplines do yeah where whereas I think health psychology is different in that most people use whichever tools techniques and theories best address the public health need yeah um, and, and I think you know people at the behavioral science and public health network are all on, are all on the same page with that and you know all the public health practitioners I've met just want to do a better job and are very keen to listen to what, what it is that we're up to yeah great no I, I totally agree with that too um what do you think we should be doing more of today uh, to ensure that people in the real world benefit from good behavioral science I, th I think what, what we need to do is get uh, a consistent message that out there that actually behavioural science... Well, I, I think there's a perception that it's not really a science. I think there's a bit of suspicion about it. And I think there's a, a feeling that it's all common sense. Um, the, the, the problem is that what's common sense doesn't necessarily change people's behaviour. So if you, mm. you just think about, you know, um, opposites attract. You know, that's common sense. Opposites attract. Well... At the same time, you can say well, birds of a feather flock together. So those are two opposing ideas that are both common sense, both mm. at the same time. Mm. And, you know, there's elements of truth in both of them. And I think that's one of the difficulties that we've got in behavioural science is persuading people that it's more complicated than they think it is. So, yeah, I, th I think people need to move away from a, these common sense explanations mm. because people don't have, I think, great insight into the things that change their own behaviour and are very opinionated about the things that will change other people's behaviour. Yeah. Well, really, I mean, it, now we've said the word common sense a lot in the mm. last hour or so. What, what actually is common sense? It doesn't really exist. It's, it's just <laughs> things that people agree on. Um, it, it's also... They're, they're almost like uh, clichés, you know, they're mm. truisms, they're... Um, things that fill gaps in awkward conversations, you yeah. know, it's... Because you hear it a lot and you think, oh, yeah, yeah. And you think, oh, that's a good thing, common sense. But actually, when you really look at... When you when you apply a, a more empirical sort of way of working to anything, you usually find out a lot, of, a lot of things that are common sense really aren't. They don't really actually work. It's, 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 slightly, it's slightly vacuous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, what is it you're most excited or curious about in behavioural science or behaviour change science at the moment? I mean, so, so there are, I guess there are two answers to this question. The thing I'm most excited about at the moment is really getting to the bottom of this behaviour change technique taxonomy and really trying to map out what works for whom and when. Um, because I think that will give us the building blocks for designing interventions from scratch. Yeah. Or at least adapting yeah. existing, you know, or optimising existing interventions. And I, I think that's a real sort of go back to space travel black <laughs> yeah. hole in a way because it could take decades you know to really get to the bottom of each of these and of course there's going to be an updated behavior change technique taxonomy so everything yes, shifts yeah. but i think that would be a really important piece of work to do but it's a massive piece of work to do so that's that's yeah. from the basic side i think that's something that definitely is doing and definitely something that we're working on 
On the applied side, I think the key is to working more closely with people on the ground to translate the things that we do know, because we'll never know everything, yeah. but to translate what we think works best on the available evidence and actually trying it out in practice, but encouraging people in practice to do evaluations and to work with us to develop evaluations that work for everybody. Great. Um, and speaking of, so, so those people who are on the ground with that stuff, what what would you recommend they do? If, if say, say someone working in public health um, or someone just starting out in industry, what, what do you recommend they do um, if they're not going to go off and do a PhD in behavioural science or, or health psychology or whatever, what, what should they do to upskill themselves so that they can be part of this conversation? Get in touch with the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, I think, yeah. because that is a, a great forum for precisely that kind of audience. So when, when I spoke there, I thought what was great was that there were only, I think, 30% academics there. And I think one thing that academics have been guilty of is talking to ourselves. Yeah. So um, next week it's the Division of Health Psychology Conference in Manchester. Um, and I go most years to it. I'm a former chair of the division. You know, I really like going. It's a great opportunity to catch up with colleagues. But it's talking to other people like me. Yeah. And I think probably we need to do less of that and more of talking to people who are working on the, on the ground. Yeah, okay. And sh well, sharing practice generally um, between academics, between um, academics and, and practitioners to, to sort of spread the word and make sure that you're not missing out on what the academics are doing as well. That's right, yeah. So yeah. it's, it's a, a, a culture of shared practice. Great, okay. So um, to, to move things to um, you, you personally, what, how do you use your knowledge of behavioural change or, or behavioural science in your personal life? <laughs> Or do you use it in your personal life? I, I absolutely do. And my the, the technique I use most often is known as uh, implementation intention formation. Yeah. So they are if-then plans that um, come from laboratory research. And if you form an if-then plan, um, the if part of the plan makes things in the environment salient. The, the then part of the plan gives you an instruction as to what you should do and putting the two elements together mimics the effect of a habit yeah, so um, so a classic would be if I'm walking to work and I need to post something what I typically do because I'm a creature of habit most of us are creatures of habit mm. is I'd have have the letter with me I'd walk past the post box like I do every single day and then have to go out at lunchtime and do it but if I form an if then plan then the post box jumps out at me, or it becomes more salient in the environment. Mm -hmm. The then part of the plan, which is to post the letter, reminds me to actually do it, and I'm much more likely to actually do it. Yeah. And those if-then plans, again, one of these examples of an elegant way of um, changing people's behaviour. So we've got used them to help smokers to quit, to help people drink less alcohol, to get people more physically active, and to change people's diet. Um, so it's rooted in laboratory research. Mm -hmm. It's something that we've been running all sorts of different trials. We've really sort of hammered the the parameters of it. So um, it doesn't seem to matter how the if-then plans presented. So we've presented them, got people to generate them for themselves. We've given them to people to read. We've put them on the side of wine bottles. Mm -hmm. We've tested these things to destruction, and they work 
consistently for all kinds of groups of people for all kinds of behaviours. Great. That's definitely the most structured answer we've had so far. That is definitely the most well considered. So we've done. I mean, we've done dozens and dozens of studies. Yeah. So, so we've looked at. You know, does it matter if you say when as opposed to if? Because when's more definite, and there might be a, a linguistic mm. thing that doesn't seem to make much difference. Yeah. But it's it is it is better than just forming a regular plan. So one of our control conditions will get people you know, just plan to quit smoking. Doesn't work. It has to be this if then formulation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. Definitely the most academic answer we've had so far. So that, that works coming from the academic. Um, Chris, where can people go to find out a little bit more about your project and your and your work? I think the most straightforward way is to use an online search engine and put in Manchester Centre for Health Psychology and it's the top hit on most things. Great. So you can find more about my work and the work of the centre as a whole because obviously it's all been about me as this interview <laughs> and uh, as I said we've got great colleagues working on a variety of different topics. Fantastic and and what about the um, you mentioned a couple of times the uh, behavioural science consortium did where can people go to, to sort of hear about Well again we have our own website so yeah. look up behavioural science consortium it would be the top uh, research, uh, top search result. And who should go and check that out? Who should go and look for the behaviour? Because I, I see that very much as the link between the academic and the, and the, the practitioner. So, who, who are you? Who is your audience with with that that um, project? Uh, pr- precisely that audience. It's mostly for people who are interested in changing people's behaviour and are interested in studying people's behaviour and cha- and and just doing it better. Right. Okay. Um, if if you had um, if, you, if you were giving advice to someone who wanted to get into your field uh, and was looking to use behaviour change um, science or behavioural science practically, what what would what would your advice be? I would advise them to look into the behavioural science and public health network. Again, yeah. you know there are web pages there as well. It's a, a great organisation, and it is that meeting point of ideas and practice. Great. Um, thanks so much for your for your time today, Chris. It's been really fantastic to talk to you. I think you've had a really interesting career, um, and that you're making that link between academia and practitioners really, really well. And I, I hope the rest of the industry is sort of following the suit in the same way. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I just wanted to say thanks again to Chris for such an interesting and varied interview. Uh, I really enjoyed doing it. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Um, We'll be back again next month with a really interesting guest, Rich Sheridan. He's the chief exec of Menlo Innovations, which is an innovation company in the um, Ann Arbor region of Michigan in the States. Uh, so, So listen out for that one. In the meantime, don't forget you can join the BSPHN at www.bsphn.org.uk for just £25 if you're working or £10 if you're not working, including if you're a student. There's lots of benefits to this, including discounted fees for events, uh, workshops and CPD events, access to a range of professionals uh, and a big network of, of, of really well-qualified professionals, regular publications, footage from all the recent events and presentations and interviews with top experts from our field. Uh, you can sign up for my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog where I give my views on public health, behaviour change and running a company with the aim of doing meaningful work but having fun whilst doing it. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does take uh, less than a minute and it could help someone else discover the great work that's going on around the world in behaviour change. Uh, If you could subscribe on iTunes and be sure to tell people through social media, that would be great. 
If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on at Stu underscore King underscore HH on Twitter, and I look forward to hearing from you soon.